Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. Today happens to be, I think it's our 17th show or show 17 if I'm not mistaken. And uh, where we left off the last time is we were starting to talk about, we were in uh, the chapter that was discussing finance, chapter 8 in this particular book. And uh, we were talking about adjustable rate mortgages. So what I would like to do is continue on from that point on and I'm going to kind of move over here to the document camera for a minute. Uh, as we talked about before, that there was uh, something called fixed rate mortgages. I probably have mentioned uh, during that lecture, if I haven't, I, I usually do, the fact that uh, at one time most mortgages that people, like when I bought my first house, it was usually you went down, you got a fixed rate mortgage, the interest stayed the same, it was for 30 years, it never changed, and that was the end of it. There was no other real options that were very popular. Today we have things, we, you're going to go out there and find out that's what's made financing so sort of complicated is because we have a whole different, a huge amount of different types of mortgages or uh, financial instruments that people can use to buy houses. And so consequently it's not just like I take an order and look in a book and find out what the interest rate is and, that, and I'm done. It's like there's a lot of programs and you have to find out which best meets your client's needs. Adjustable rate mortgages, and as the book says here, that uh, this is their estimation. They say uh, uh, this, uh, by the way, isn't a variable rate mortgage. Is more importantly referred to as an adjustable rate mortgage, meaning that the interest rate can go up or down. And it says here, which is interesting, about 100 different types of arms adjustable rate mortgages are used in California with no standardized arm. And the, the important point here is, is the reason why we have these adjustable rate mortgages is because what we're trying to do is we're trying to get or help people get into and be able to buy houses uh, that normally could not necessarily afford to buy them. And what we really do underneath, normally underneath an adjustable rate mortgage, you'll have things like, for example, where somebody will apply for and receive a mortgage. And as an example, that... Uh, interest rate or their payment would be fixed for say a year's period of time. After a year's period of time then the lender would take a look at that mortgage and they would take a look at what's happening within the whole financial industry or economy and make a decision on whether to leave the interest rate and the payments where they were or to raise them or to lower them. And, and these different increments you can have them for like one year three years, five years, seven years, I've seen them for ten years, uh, and I'm sure that there's other variations of that as we go out, but usually it's somewhere between every one year, five, three year, or five year. The concept behind these mortgages is the fact that, number one, it helps the buyer get in for hopefully a lower payment or a less of a payment that they would on a fixed rate mortgage, and that's usually true all, almost all the time. The second thing, though, that they need, and the concept also, is that whoever is going to go in, the, in my opinion, into this kind of a mortgage should be somebody that knows there's a risk associated with it where the payments may go up. And the scenario may very well be that somebody is just, you know, maybe they're working at, at their particular job and they feel pretty confident that in the next two, three, four, five years that they're going to get promoted, their job, their income is going to increase or if it's just the husband is working, the wife is going to go back to work, but somewhere along the line that there's some way to cover that idea of the loans possibly going up. Right now, as I speak, the interest rates are going up, the loan payments are going up, and in a lot of cases, people that got in 
with uh, rates that could change right after the first year or getting to a situation where they may very well have to, they're being forced to make much higher payments. And if they bought or paid too much for the house, they may find out where even if they try to refinance it, the house is not worth what they did pay for it. And they could be in a situation where they could lose the house. So it's a really dangerous thing. And, and I kind of want to emphasize to you, especially if you're going to be in this business, you want to make sure that you put clients or help clients make right decisions. You don't want to sort of get the reputation <laughs> that you're going to put people and uh, sell them homes in which, hey, you know what, after a couple of years, you're putting them in a home that costs so much money and they couldn't financially afford that they start losing it. That's not a very good way to build a real estate practice, which is part of what this class is about. Now, what they do on the next page is they talk about some of those things generically, and then they have a chart on the following page. But I think uh, what I just want to brush over or mention here is that there are certain things that people need to think about when they get these adjustable rate loans and they're starting to shop for them. First of all, they need to find out what is the initial interest rate and how long will it be used. In other words, am I getting this rate for one year and then it's adjustable after that? You know, in, in other words, does it last for one year and then it's adjustable for the next uh, for the years that follow? Or is it, is it fixed for two years and then it adjusts or three years or five years? In other words, how long is that interest rate going to last? The second thing that we want to call, uh, look at is what causes the interest rate to change. And we're looking at what, what index, what method does the lender use in order to make that decision. There are a number of indexes that they'll look at. They'll look at our T-bills going up in interest rates, bonds going up in interest rates. There's an index called the LIBOR index, which is common, um, uh, which is, I believe, the London Interbank uh, rate is another index, uh, the consumer price index. In other words, what are they looking at in order to make a decision that they're going to raise the rates? And then you may very well want to ask them, what's the trend using that indicator? Is it, is it something that goes up and is very sensitive to, to the market, or is it something that's fairly stable? In other words, you as a consumer want to know what that rate is. How did they make that decision? And historically, how has that acted? The next thing is, uh, how often can the interest rate change? This may be anywhere from every month to once a year. So. You could have, for example, where they may say, okay, you're going to have a one-year adjustable rate mortgage, and after the end of that year, it's going to adjust, and it'll adjust every six months, or it'll adjust every year, it'll adjust every, two, uh, every month. You want to know how often will that interest rate change. Very important indicator or important piece of information to know. How much is the next one? How much can it change? Very, very important. In other words, are they allowed to take and jump that interest rate up? Are you going to be sitting there and looking at payments of maybe $2,000 a month, and then all of a sudden they're going to come back, and in one fell swoop they're going to raise your payments by three or four or $500? How much can that rate go up? Typically what they'll do is say something like, hey, we can only raise it like a quarter of a percent or a half a percent or what, but what is that percent and how often can it change? Very, very important, especially if you haven't budgeted for it. Another question you want to ask is, what's the ceiling? In other words, how high can that rate go? What's the limit? You may initially get a loan that has a 5% interest rate, but there may be a lid on it that it will go as high as 10%, possibly. So what is the limit on that loan? And typically what will end up happening is that limit usually will go up as the interest rates go up. So it's very important that you know what that is. And the last thing is, is can payments be changed? Rate increases are normally accompanied by payment increases within given limits. Lenders 
Do not try to keep reasonable ratio between borrowers' income and monthly payments. The important point is, is can the payments be changed? In other words, if something does happen, uh, can you possibly, uh, even so you got, your payment maybe will go up $200 a month, is it possible that you can do something to negotiate with the bank to make the loan so the payments don't go up that much. What that will cause, though, is something called negative amortization, which means that the, the, the amount that you owe will continue to grow. But the point is, is when you shop for loans, you need to ask all of those questions. It's very, very, very important that you do that and that you help clients to do that. They will also bring up another kind of a loan here. They call it a special purpose loan. This is something called a graduated payment mortgage. These mortgages are also available through uh, Federal Housing Administration and several other programs. The concept here is that we borrow a certain amount of money from the lender in order for us to buy a house. We fix the payments that we're going to make. And what under a graduated payment mortgage, what we're doing is we're always not quite making enough of a payment for us to fully amortize the loan. So in other words, under a graduated payment mortgage, first of all, the payments are going to go up. At some, so it might be the first year it's uh, $1,000. The next year it's $1,100. The next year it's $1,150. The next year it's $1,200. The concept behind that, first of all, is that it should be going along with somebody that feels that their income is going to go up. That's very important. The second thing is those payments that are being made to the lender are in most cases not enough to fully amortize the loan. In other words, you maybe really need to be making payments at $1,100 a month, but you're only making them at, say, $1,050. So that additional $50 that you should have been paying is normally added to the amount that you owe. So keep in mind that's called negative amortization, meaning the size of the loan is going to grow. So if you had borrowed $100,000 after five years, you may find out that you would not owe just the $100,000. You may find out instead of the loan going down, it has gone up. Very important thing to keep in mind. All right, so that takes care of that. This page just talks about the adjustable rate mortgages. It talks about some things that I think that you all should become very, very familiar with. Uh, this talks about the index that I was discussing, how the index works. This talks about the in, in, interval between adjustments. In other words, how often can it be changed? This discusses the cap. In other words, what's the limit? How high can the loan go? This discusses something called the margin. And the margin is, is the spread between the index rate and the initial contract rate. In other words, what's the difference between the index? So the index might be at, I don't know, say, for example, 4% but the payments that you're actually making are at 6%. In other words, what's the difference between that? What's, what's the margin? And uh, so these are things that you as a, as a real estate person need to know very, very well and be able to explain to a client until they completely understand. Remember, we do not want to put clients in properties that they cannot afford. In fact, some cases, the, the, the final answer to some people, not all people, but some people might be the fact that they need to either, maybe they need to continue to rent Maybe they're not in a position where they can actually afford. Uh, it doesn't do anybody any good to buy a house and own it for a year and then find out it's foreclosed on. They lose it. They, lo they ruin their credit. They lose the house. They lose a lot of things. That doesn't help a client at all. So maybe, maybe after them finding out about financing, maybe one of the answers to it is, is hey, you, maybe you need to rent for uh, another couple of years until you actually can find, uh, until you, your income goes up. That might be one answer. 
or that they may have to take and buy a house that is not of the, of the size they were initially thinking. Maybe they were looking in the price range of 500000 find out, hey, I can't afford that. They may have to be forced to maybe get something smaller, maybe a condo or a townhouse and maybe the two to $300,000 range for their first house because at least that they can afford to pay. That'll be, end up being a tax deduction that they can take the interest in the, and the uh, on their loans will be and the taxes they pay and then that way it can help them build equity. So they may have to put it off but that might be a better solution than sticking them in the big house and putting them right on the edge where they can lose the house. The next thing that they talk about in the book here is something called the secondary market. Secondary market. And the concept behind the secondary market is this and uh, the best way I can illustrate this would be in this way. If you happen to live in a very small town, if you could sort of visualize yourself living in a small town where there's maybe one bank in that town, and all of the people that live in that town go to that bank. That's the place that they make their deposits. Also, that bank is the same one that lends them money uh, for the purchases of homes, for businesses, for, for them to buy a car. If you keep in mind for a minute and you think of this small bank, one of the things, the only place that if we use that scenario that the, that the bank can get its money from is from the people that are in the community that are depositing the funds. That's the only place. The second thing is, is that remember in most communities like that, you're, you know, you're, people will have times when things are very, going very well and everybody's employed and they have lots of money and they can put it in the bank and there's times when things are not going very well and they may be unemployed. Also, there might be times when they may have something like a natural disaster. Maybe there's an earthquake, there's a hurricane, there's a tornado. Something goes through the community and does damage, so there's some sort of risk there. Well, the concept of the, of the secondary market, the secondary market as they talk about here, and they talk about in three different areas, they talk about a secondary market being somebody we call Fannie Mae, and these are people that buy mortgages. We also have something called Ginnie Mae, and we have Freddie Mac and all I really kind of want to get across here the purpose of this is that that bank that small bank that's in that community in order for that bank to get money what they essentially do is they uh, keeping in mind of the only source they can get it from is that community they have to go to someplace else so when we talk about the secondary market what they're really doing is that that bank may have a loan officer that sits there and goes ahead and makes loans on real estate and after they get so many loans that they've made maybe say a million dollars as an example they package those loans together and they turn around and they sell them on the secondary market now the secondary market think of it more like the stock market you can kind of think of it in that way where people will buy these bank of loans now that does a couple things first of all the bank is now in the, in the job of creating loans, okay? They're not actually lending the people's money out. They're just creating the loans. When they sell those loans on the secondary market, the secondary market is going to return back to them money. In other words, when they buy them, they can take that money they've just gotten back and they can reloan that money out again. So it's a way for that bank to get funds that they haven't had before. So that's one thing. The second thing is, is that if you think about it for a minute, uh, if you take areas where we've had natural disasters like earthquakes or in Mississippi where we've had hurricanes and where we've had areas that are devastated, that whole entire community could be wiped out due to some sort of a natural disaster. And if that's the case, we put everybody's 
money at risk. But by taking and selling those loans to the secondary market, we can spread that risk throughout the United States and, in fact, throughout the world. So everybody that buys these only buys a small little piece of them. And so not one major catastrophe could have an effect just on that one community. So we spread the risk. And probably the third thing is, is it provides a place to sell those loans and it's providing that bank with some what we call liquidity, some way of them getting some money. Because normally in the past, in fact, even in Sacramento, we still have banks that are lenders that are like that, that make loans and they call them portfolio loans. In other words, they make those loans, they have no intention of selling them, they hold on to them with the idea in mind that that's where they're going to get their interest from. Uh, the money that they're going to get, in other words, the interest that they're going to earn, that they're going to use that interest to pay their existing depositors. Um, probably the fourth thing that that secondary market has done is they've actually set some standards, which is very important. If you have a lender uh, that's in this community, in Sacramento community, decides that they want to make their own loans, they can come up with whatever kind of paperwork they want. They can use any kind of documents any kind of loan application, they can set their standards for appraisal, they can set their standards for how much money you need, you know, how much, what portion of your income you're going to use for your house payment. In other words, they set their own standards. But when you're using and selling your loans on the secondary market to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, uh, secondary market, what they do is they have a set of standards that you, you as a lender have to follow. And later on in this chapter, I'll point out the form that you fill out just to start out with the loan application. That is a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac form. So what it is, is that they start setting standards. You know, what is it that people need to put down on a loan application? You know, what kinds of documents do we need from them? If we get an appraisal, what kinds of appraisals are we looking for? Are we requiring new buyers to get things like termite reports? So they're setting standards for the industry, and that becomes very important. And the reason why they set those standards is because they want to make sure they can look at all of those loans and they can have one way of judging whether they're good or bad. If everybody follows the same documentation procedure and the same processing, then they have one way of looking at all the loans. Very, very important to setting standards. So they've also done that too. So anyway, there's several different organizations, and I know you've probably went through this before in real estate um, principles and maybe in real estate finance. This just talks about the primary organizations. Uh, this is Fannie Mae, which is a, um, it says it was uh, created to increase the amount of funds available to the ha uh, finance housing. Okay, so now you're not just limited to the banks in the local community, but you can sell those loans and be able to get financing through them or have provide liquidity. Uh, Ginny May, same situation, uh, is a government corporation referred to as Ginny May. It sells secondary mortgages to the public and provides federal government with cash. Okay, so this is another one. And then finally on the back, we talk about our old friend Fred, Freddie Mac. So the concept, and some of these organizations are, if you will, close to being government or quasi-government, but the whole idea is to provide that kind of standardization, liquidity within the market to buy and sell mortgages. Very important. Um, next thing that we want to talk about in here, and that's the secondary market, next thing we want to talk about here is the uh, government financing programs. Now, a lot of us, myself included, when you get ready to buy your first house, probably second house, or even third house, you're going to find out that you usually do not have enough money to put as a down payment 
on the house. Typical conventional financing usually requires, normally, that you as a borrower have the ability to put down 20% of the purchase price. So, for example, if you're buying a $100,000 house, that would be 20% would be $20,000 for $100,000, $40,000 for $200,000, $60,000 for $300,000. Now, the problem is when we get ready to buy our first, second, third house, we don't, unless somebody's left us some money, we don't really have a lot of, we don't have a lot of money to put as a down payment. Typically, what will end up happening is usually when we get to our fourth, fifth, or sixth house, you know, and probably when we're somewhere in our 40s or 50s, have we earned enough equity in the houses that we've owned that we can use that as a down payment? So what that kind of drives us to is, is that we usually are having to do some kind of government-backed type of financing. And the typical ones that we're going to be talking about is one is called FHA, which is the Federal Housing Administration. The second one, if you've been in the service, is called the Veterans Administration, or VA. And the last one in California, at least, is all called the California Department of Veterans Affairs, or the CalVet program. So we'll be talking really kind of briefly about those. The uh, next page with the graphic on it that I wanted to show you is that they broke these loans sort of down into uh, some categories. And they're saying, okay, out of the government-backed loans... You have, you have people that make indirect loans, FHA, uh, FHA and VA. Now, what they mean by indirect loans is this, is that FHA and VA are not lending the money. What they are doing is they are either insuring or they're guaranteeing. And there's a difference. FHA insures and VA guarantees. And uh, we could spend a lot of time going over that, but I just want to let you know that there's a, a little bit of a difference there. The concept is this. If you go out to buy a house, and remember, most lenders are going to want you to put 20% down. If you put something less than 20% down, like 15%, 10%, 5%, or maybe even in some cases no money down, the less money you put down, the closer you are to possibly just, if you have something that happens financially, just saying, you know what, I lost my job, take the house back. You know, I, I got mad at my wife and we're getting a divorce, take the house back. Uh, I decided I want to move out of the community. I can't sell the house. Take the house back. So, in other words, if you don't have a lot of money invested in the house, the chances of you just saying, forget about it, I'm going to walk away from it, are pretty high. The more money you have down, the less likely you're going to do. If you take 20%, if you put down $60,000 on, on, on a $300,000 house, you're probably not just going to walk away and say, well, forget about it. I'm not going to, you're going to do something to make it happen, to, to make sure you hold on to that house. Well, what happens is, is if you take to the fact that when we're first young, we don't have enough money, we don't have that 20% to put down, we need to get it from someplace. Well, what happens is, is for example, under FHA, FHA, you can borrow up to, for example, up to 97% of the value of the property. So that means if you were buying a $100,000 house, you could borrow up to 97% of the money. What FHA will do is they will insure the lender that if you default, okay, if you, if you cannot make the payments, that FHA will step in and take the house over so the lender is not at risk. Uh, that makes the lender feel comfortable, and therefore they will lend you the money because they know that it's insured by somebody else. Uh, VA will do the same thing. VA will also lend, in some cases, up to 100% of the value of the property, 
And with the same concept in mind, they say to the lender, listen, if all PAT does not make the payments, we, the VA, will make sure that you are not going to lose your money. We will make sure that we will pick up the house and take it over. In fact, in some cases, I've, I've, see, I've had situations where FHA will go and take the house back and actually hire people, come in, fix the house up, and put it back out on the market and sell it again. I've had the same thing with VA. In fact, the first house I ever bought in my life when I was uh, 21, 22 years old was a VA repossession where somebody had, the VA had repossessed the house, taken it back bef uh, because of lack of payment. They took it over. They did some work, fixed it up, and then it was, went back out on the market, and I happened, al happened along, and I bought the house. Okay, so that's not an unusual circumstance for them to take them back. How, how many they take back and how often they do, it depends upon how, you know, how bad the market is. You know, the higher the, fr the interest rates go, the more there are in the area of foreclosures. So you may find out the VA and the FHA may be stuck taking back properties that they haven't had to before, okay? So just to keep that in mind. CalVet, on the other hand, CalVet does make direct loans. Their loans are made directly. And the way CalVet works is that when you, you as, a, um, as a voter, when you go to the polls, you will probably see something on the ballot in which CalVet will have uh, a bond issue, and they'll ask for your permission. It'll say something like CalVet or this program is to, go, to authorize uh, the California Veterans Administration to go ahead and create and issue bonds or sell bonds to the public, meaning to whoever pension plans, profit-sharing plans, whoever wants to buy them, with the idea in mind that they're going to raise money and when they raise that money, they're going to use it for two purposes. One is they're going to use it to run the administrative part of CalVet, and the second place that they're going to use it is to lend money to veterans, to California veterans. By the way, one thing I did want to mention to you is every one of those programs has a website, okay? Every one of them has a website that fully explains their programs. And nowadays, in all cases, whether it's FHA, VA, or CalVet, if you need to find some information out and find out if your client can qualify for those or to get some help, it's very easy. You can call a lender nowadays. It used to be where you were stuck dealing in some capacity with these different organizations, especially like CalVet. Now what you can do is you can take a company like Viatech. We had uh, Michelle Dillingham who writes for the Sacramento Bee. She also works for Viatech come in last week at the internship class. You can give somebody like that uh, who's an excellent loan person a call, and they can help you with any one of those programs, help your qual client qualify. And she can actually, or they, whoever the lender is, can actually completely fill you in on the details, make sure that you're qualified, and, and do all the necessary loan paperwork that's necessary for you to get any one of those loans. Very, very important that you know that. So that takes care of those government programs. The next thing that I wanted to mention to you, and I think this is a very good document that they have here. This is on page 306 and 307. And I probably, the best way to show this is because it takes up both pages to just show you the one for the FHA because it works the same for all of them. But I would venture to say that if you are a real estate person in this profession, you would probably want to have either from a lender or have it in some kind of a form, a document like this, that at once very easily to be able to take a look at this and keep yourself up to speed on what's happening in the finance industry. 
So what they're doing here, and they break this down, you'll notice they have a column here which is talking about certain kind of requirements and then it's talking about the individual programs. So as an example, underneath eligibility, it's telling you that here anyone in the United States residing in the United States legally, I don't think they put in, that in here, can actually apply for an FHA loan. So you don't have to be a veteran or anything else. It tells you where the source of funds are. They're through approved lenders. So in other words, lenders that are approved by uh, FHA are the ones that will actually be the one that will be lending you the money. It tells you the loan instrument. Depending upon where you're located, it will either be the deed of trust or a mortgage. Remember, a deed of trust is a three-party instrument primarily used in California. A mortgage is a two-party instrument. The term, it's giving you the term is 30 years. Now, this is one thing right here where... You kind of want to keep this in mind. FHA has a number of different programs. They're just giving you an example of their basic 203B program. Okay, FHA has many more programs besides their standard 203 basic program. They have other kinds of programs, so they're only talking about one. That's why talking to a loan person is very important. Or if you want to become a loan person, knowing all of this stuff is very important. Um, interest rates. They'll tell you that the current interest rates plus uh, mortgage insurance premiums paid up front or prior to the close of escrow, that's to insure the lender in the event of a default. This gives you the maximum purchase. This is a deceptive line right here. What this means is that does FHA have a limit on how much they're going to lend you or you can borrow and they will insure? The answer to that is yes. But it means that you could, buy, you could use that money to fund, say, the first mortgage and maybe get uh, the owner to carry back a second, which would, be, which would be higher than the normal FHA limits. That's all they're talking about there. Uh, the next thing here is they say maximum loan amount for high-cost areas. And you're going to find out that certain areas, they're going to change this depending upon what area it is. And that's why you need to get familiar with the Internet and how to find this out on a regular basis. But here it'll tell you it's 90% of the maximum for the um, county average, house, condo, and then they give you different limits. This is for a house or a condo, 290,319, and again, this changes. Duplex is 371, triplex is 449, and a fourplex is 558. The reason why they give you that is that program covers people. For example, you may buy a house, and maybe part of your idea of buying a house is, hey, you know what, I'm going to buy a duplex. I'm going to live in one side, my wife and my family are going to live in one side, and I'm going to rent out the other side. Or I'm going to live in a triplex. I'll live in one unit and rent the other two. Or a fourplex. So that's why they're talking in that particular concept, if you want to do something like that. This tells you what the down payments are. Down payments are 3% minimum cash investment, 100% over the appraised value. So what that means is that if you're paying more than what the appraisal is, you're going to have to come up with that. You're going to have to come up with that amount of money. Uh, why would you pay more than the appraisal? I guess because of the fact that you have a perception that that property is worth more than anybody else would think it would be worth. Uh, secondary financing means: Could I have the owner carry back a second, or could I get financing from someplace else? Yes, it is allowed. Do I have a prepayment penalty? Very important. None, but you do have to give them 30 days' notice that you want to pay it off. Is it assumable? Two years if owner-occupied. That's very important that you know uh, if the loan is assumable and under what circumstances, meaning if you have a very low interest rate attractive loan, can it be assumed, but what are the, what are the circumstances that you would allow somebody to assume the loan? 
Uh, this tells you who the points are paid by. It could be paid by the buyer or seller. Does the borrower's monthly payment? And it gives you a range of what it is. It says monthly principal and interest has got to be somewhere between 29 to 41% of the annual gross income. This is another thing when you're talking about financing, you'll see different limits and you'll see different factors. One might say net income, the other will say gross income, some will say principal and interest, the other one will say principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. So you need to know what that is. And then this is telling you right here, it says monthly salary after federal taxes has got to be approximately three times the total monthly payment. Okay? So the concept is they have this here. They also have it on the next page, but they lose that one. Um, they lose that one area. They have the same thing for both VA and for CalVet. And I would highly recommend that if you're going to be in the real estate business, that you probably get to know a loan agent extremely well. If if you're not going to be one yourself, and also that you have some kind of a matrix or a document, something like this, so that you know what the programs are at least to start. I know what Michelle was saying that the uh, lady that works for Viatech is that she has a lot of clients many times that will come into the office to get a loan, and what'll happen is they'll come in and they maybe they'll walk in and say, you know what, I was reading in the paper about this FHA loan or this VA loan program. But after she sits down with them and finds out what they basically want to buy and what their financial situation is, she may very well find out they're qualified for other programs. So keep in mind that that's why that loan consultant is important, so that they know all of the programs that are available, all of the requirements, and can look at what the client is trying to accomplish and what is the best program to meet their needs. And every single client is different. Every single person is different. So we, we have to kind of match those things together. A um, couple other things in here um, that we need to mention. Um, they do give you um, a picture of the website for VA. And I believe I do also have this on Blackboard. Uh, you would, you would want to do this and go there so that you are familiar and continue to be familiar with what the programs really are. These, these financing programs change on a regular basis. As an example, I'll give you one example. Currently right now, CalVet has a very, very high limit on what you're allowed to borrow when you get ready to buy a house. I cannot remember off the top of my head exactly what that figure is, but I want to say it's somewhere around $529,000 to $530,000. It's a fairly high amount of money. You can use that money to buy a house, purchase a house, but currently, right as I speak right now, CalVet will not allow you to use that money to refinance an existing loan. Okay? That does not mean that CalVet may not change those requirements next year or the year after that. We never know. At one time, CalVet had very strict requirements. You had to be a California veteran. You had to have entered the military, as far as I knew, from California. This is years and years ago. Uh, it used to be that there was a huge, long list of people out looking for CalVet loans, and you had to put your name on the list before you would ever be able to even, you know, you had to work your way up the list in order to get a loan. Then all of a sudden, they would run out of money, and then you'd be, you'd, you know, it was not a very efficient program. Well, they've become very, very efficient. And those programs have changed dramatically over the years, so you need to kind of keep up on what's going on with them. Very, very important. Um, underneath this, they also talk to you about things like eligibility. Uh, 
you know, this is another one of those things, whenever you're going to apply for any of these veterans loans, you want to find out whether the people are eligible or not. At the CalVet website, we'll talk, or any of these websites, you can actually go there and I know, like, for example, at CalVet and fill out a form online and find out whether you are eligible or not. Very, very important that you, you're able to do that, okay? Um, the next thing, kind of moving along here as quickly as I can so we don't run out of time. Okay, this happens to be the uh, website here for CalVet. So again, very good program. Uh, when you do go to these websites, by the way, plan on spending a little bit of time there, looking through what they do have available. Uh, each website is a little bit different, and the information is not a little bit, is, it can be quite a bit different, and the information can be located in different areas. So it's not necessarily in the same area on each website. But you do want to keep up with what's going on. Um, okay, so we've taken care of that. The next thing that I want to talk about that's in your book is called, is this form right here. And we don't have enough time to really spend the amount of time that it would take to go over this, but this is what we call the Uniform Residential Loan Application. This is the standard application, and I'm going to push this up a little bit, and you may not even see this in the book. And I'll go down to the bottom here, and I'm going to blow it up. And you're going to notice when I blow it up, when I blow this area up right here, that this form is a form that's called a Freddie Mac Form 65. And if you remember when I was talking about the fact that what we've done is we've started to standardize the requirements that the lenders have, this form works for both. So when the, when the client fills this out, this means that they're filling out the requirements so that this loan can be sold to Freddie Mac. And guess what? On the other side, the same form is called the Fannie Mae Form 11003, okay? The concept here is that this form is asking all of the questions that are necessary from the client so that this loan could be then sold on the secondary market to either Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Okay? In fact, sometimes people will wonder, well, how come when I go down to sign the papers at the escrow office, all of a sudden I get a call because I didn't initial something right or I didn't sign in the right place or I need a certain kind of information? The reason why you need that is because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are requiring that. That's why the lender is asking you for that. But I would say that one of the things that I like about this form is that if, if clients are starting to look to buy a piece of property or you're trying to help them, it would be a good position for them to have this kind of information available when they sit down with the lender. Because the lender is going to be asking them how much money they earn, where they live, where they work. So the questions that are in this form, you need to basically have your clients be ready, willing, and able to answer these questions. Also, also, you'll notice that the form is, after we talk about the uh, initial property and, and, and the initial uh, purchase price, down here we ha use the term borrower and co-borrower. And the reason why we do that is because you may find out that you may have a client where it's going to take both the husband and the wife's income in order to buy the house. In fact, in a lot of cases, that's what happens. 
And the husband and the wife are going to have different sets of circumstances. They're going to have a different amount of income they make. They're going to have different places that they work. In fact, in a lot, in some cases, you may find out that they have different credit ratings, especially if they've been through a divorce uh, or have had any kind of financial problems in the past. So you're going to have information for the borrower and information for the co-borrower, okay? which the borrower might be the wife and the co-borrower is the husband. Or it could be like a father and a son or a daughter and a, and a mother. Whoever it happens to be, that's the financial information that they need to have to be able to provide to the lender. And the lender is going to require, and the lender, the lender is going to be asking this not because they have nothing else to do. They're going to be asking this because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are going to want to know what that information is for each individual loan that they're going to be buying. Okay. The next thing that we want to talk about in this whole process is something called credit scoring, which is on this page right here. Let me zoom it back out again. Keep in mind that whenever you get ready to buy a piece of property or get a loan against a piece of property, that they are going to be looking at two basic areas. The first area they're going to be looking at, and the way I like to describe this, is your capacity or your client's capacity to repay the loan. What I mean by capacity, that means they're going to be looking for things like your income tax statements, how much you earn on a monthly basis. They're going to want to know what your last two pay stubs are. They may very well, before you close the loan, call your employer back again and find out if you're still working there. Um, they're going to want to know how many years you've worked there, what your longevity is. That all has to do with your ability or your capacity to make the payment. So when they look at it, they say, does Pat have the ability for he and his wife to make payments of $2,000 a month on this house? Do they have that ability? That's that part. The second part they're going to look at is the willingness. I like to call that willingness, and that is your credit score. And what they're really looking at is they're saying, you know, historically, has this client been able to make payments or been willing to make payments? Have they taken on too much credit? Have they been late in their payments? Uh, are they somebody that, you know, that, uh, you know, that has maybe had a foreclosure before, maybe a bankruptcy before, maybe uh, a car repossessed? You know, what kind of a person is this when they borrow money? And that's going to be talking about your credit score. There is a company called FICO, F-I-C-O, that created what we call an economic model, this economic model is where they take information on you, okay, or on individuals such as as, as uh, past history pay of payments, uh, repossessions, all that kind of stuff, and they put it into this, if you will, model, economic model, mathematical model that creates a score. And what that score does is it's a predictor on how what the chances are of you continuing to make payments. And what they look at is, you know, there are people that will, for example, maybe not earn a lot of money, but what will happen is if it's a choice between them eating hamburgers and beans or hot dogs and beans for a month in order for them in, to make that car payment, they will make that sacrifice. Therefore, they will have a high credit score or a good credit score. You can take somebody else that makes a lot of money and they just don't pay attention to what's going on, their payments. I mean, it could be, I've seen doctors, lawyers, all the people we think that are way up here, doctors, lawyers, builders, plumbers, electricians, you know, people make a lot of money and find out their credit is terrible. And the reason why, they make a lot of money, but they don't make payments on time or they overextend themselves. They don't have one car, they have three of them. 
Uh, they have a car and an airplane. They have a lot of things they don't need, and what ends up happening is they're late on all the payments. And in that case, their credit score can be very bad. Okay? If your credit score is down to a certain level, you're going to find out that will you be able to borrow money? The answer to that is yes, but what's going to end up happening is you're going to end up having to pay a higher interest rate because your credit score is low. And there's a lot to talk about finding out what your credit score is, your clients to find out and repairing that credit score. But anyway, some of the things that they're going to look at when they look at scoring is they're going to look at, it says, credit scoring gives the lenders a fast, objective measurement of your ability to repay a loan or to make timely credit payments. It is based solely on the information in consumer credit reports maintained at one of the credit reporting agencies. There are three of them. There are uh, There's uh, Equifax, um, Experian, and I'm trying to remember the last one. I can't off the top of my head. Um, TransUnion, I believe. That's what we're talking about, credit, uh, credit reports. And it's the data that's contained in there. And what they look at, some of the things they look at, is things like your payment history, your client, client's payment history, the amounts that you owe, the length of your credit history. Uh, I, as a quick story, uh, years ago when I bought my first house, uh, I was about 20, I think it was 22 years old. Uh, the idea that I had is, hey, you know what, I'm going to buy this house. It's a three-bedroom house. I'm going to live in one of the bedrooms. I'm going to rent out the other two rooms. The house payments were $130 a month at the time. This is back in 1972. And what I did is I had a couple friends of mine that we were all in the service together. One guy rented one room for $65 a month. The other one rented the room for $55 a month. That gave me $120, and I made up the $10 difference. That's basically what happened at that time. The interesting thing was, is I bought the house. I was able to buy the house, okay, because I was a vet. But when it came to buying furniture, I would go out and look for furniture. And I remember going to a company here in town called Levitt's, and I went around in their showroom, and we looked at a lot of different furniture, and I figured, hmm, I could buy a house. I guess I could put my, you know, get furniture on credit. We went around with the salesperson at the time, the sales guy, wrote down the stuff that I wanted. I was on the conservative side, you know, just get these guys a, a, you know, a bed and a dresser. Got all done. He went in the back. He says, how do you want to pay for it? And I says, you know what, why don't I just get some credit? And he says, fine. He disappeared for a while, came back a few minutes later and said to me, well, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? I said, something wrong with my credit. He said, no, it's not that there's a problem with your credit. It's that you don't have any credit. You've never owed anybody any money. You don't have any charge cards. You don't have any outstanding bills. You don't have any car loans. There's nothing to even show what you, how you would even go about paying credit. So consequently, I couldn't get the money to buy the get the money to buy the furniture, but I could get the money to buy the house. The bottom of the line is, is I ended up finding the money someplace else. I bought three beds at Sears and Roebuck, and I got some furniture at another store. I did it, but the point is, is that I had no credit. I had no credit history at that time, and that's not unusual for people that are new. Um, they look at things like new credit. Are you taking on more debt? What types of credit are you using? Uh, you know. Um, so anyway, that's the concept. Credit is very, very important. Very, very important. This just talks here about, uh, about the credit scoring process. On this page, talks about the law, and then these are the credit bureaus that are down here on this page right here that you can go onto that website and find out more information about each one of those credit bureaus. Um, I'm looking at the time here. Couple things that we want to talk about here. Okay, I'm going to do this very quickly. Uh, 
Non-institutional lenders. Non-institutional lenders, remember, are, are, they're not banks. They're not savings, and, as we would call savings and loans. What they are is they're non-institutional lenders. Typically, we will, what, they will fall into different categories. They may very well be somebody like, for example, we may go to a credit union and get something like a junior loan or an equity line of credit to maybe put the brand new roof on the house, or we may borrow the money from them to, in order for a car, to get a car, or we may even, in some cases, if the financing gets to be very tight, we may find out that owners are taking back the financing, helping to finance portions of the sale of the property, okay? Um, okay, so let me go. There's a lot in that particular uh, part there that you should read. Uh, let me go to the end here. Because I want to talk about this last little bit right here, I think is very, very important. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot, by the way, in this financing in this chapter. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this thing called loan takeovers. I think that it's important for me to talk about that because you're going to see probably more of this. Okay, what a loan means or an assumption. They, they use a term here. They call it assumption versus subject to. I want to basically make a broad brush stroke statement and tell you what that means. When I talk about an assumption, an assumption means to me, okay, and to a lender, that you have taken the person into the lender, you have asked the lender's permission, you have divulged to the lender that you're selling the property, and asked the lender if that's okay. You've asked them that, if that's okay. And if the lender then may very well come back and say, hey, that's not a problem, you can go ahead and have them take the loan over, or they may very well, the lender may say, yes, we would do that, but what we're going to want to do is we're going to treat that person like as if it's a brand new loan. And that means that they're going to ask for things like credit reports, income statements, they're going to ask for all that stuff, okay? So you have to look at what does the lender require you to do, okay? Now, after you get all done with that, the lender could very well turn around and say to you, hey, no problem, we can have this new buyer take this loan over. The thing that you want to pay attention to is you want to make sure that if you are the owner or your client is allowing their loan to be taken over, is to make sure that the lender is releasing the existing borrower from that loan, releasing their liability, taking them off the loan. It's got a lot of times, it's, sometimes it's called the release of liability, sometimes it's called the substitution of liability, but the point is this. If that new client, that new customer, that new buyer, all of a sudden makes payments for a while and then stops making payments for whatever reason, maybe they get sick, maybe they lose their job, maybe for whatever reason, you want to make sure that if that property goes into foreclosure that your name is not on that property. Otherwise, it's going to show up on your credit report. I don't care what anybody says. That's the truth. So you want to make sure that you find out what you're really agreeing to. Some people just say, assume, here's the, here's the payment book. Go ahead and take over the payments. Come to find out that according to the existing note and deed of trust that, that, that you signed, the lender can call the loan all due and payable today because you violated a part of the contract and you accelerate the loan. It's called an acceleration clause or an alienation clause. You don't want to do that. You want to make sure you're all on the up and up. So I'm going to read real quick here what this is. It says, a loan assumption occurs when a buyer pays a seller for part of or all of the equity in the property and assumes the responsibility for the payment of the existing loan. 
From then on, the buyer makes the necessary payments until the existing loans are paid in full or until the disposition of the loans are made. Equity is the difference between the market value of the existing, uh, existing loans, uh, the existing property, and the loans that are on the property. Taking the title subject to a prior loan constitutes an agreement to take over the loan and make the payments or lose the property, but the original party remains liable for the debt and should, should the second party default. That's very important. Make sure that the client understands what's going on. You don't want them to be sitting there and give you a call like a month or a month or two or a year or two later and say, guess what, I found out that that house I sold, I'm showing up that I'm in default. I don't want that to happen. It says this method of purchasing is normally more desirable from the standpoint of saving the buyer and the seller's expenses, provided the buyer has sufficient funds to complete the transaction. Uh, in some cases, you may want to do it because there's no discount points, there's no prepayment penalties, and there's no loan origination fee. So there's a lot of reasons why you may want to do that, if not even limited to the fact that it's a lower interest rate loan. But you want to make sure that the, that, the, that the seller is understanding what they're getting themselves into, okay, and the buyer. It says if a loan, uh, loan interest rate on an older home uh, loan is lower than the, the current loan market, the remaining years on the payment are reduced, so meaning, you know, if you continue to make the payments on the old loan, you don't have to get a newer loan. You're going to make less in monthly payments. This gives you some general rules of thumb. does not mean that it's totally accurate by any means. It says FHA loan assumption. Under some circumstances, FHA loans may be assumed. Notice they're using words may. It doesn't say must, can, will. It says may. It means that you have to talk to somebody. VA. The Veterans Administration holds the original, original maker of the loan responsible for any losses resulting from foreclosures on GI loans. That means the original guy that made, got the loan. However, liability may be eliminated from the original veteran by obtaining a release from the VA and transferring the responsibility for the loan to the buyer. Very important. It said it right there in black and white. Okay, CalVet. CalVet loan may be assumed by another qualified California veteran at the prevailing interest rate. It means if you have a property and it's very difficult to market because the interest rates are high, if it has a CalVet loan, then another CalVet can assume it. Okay, but not, you have to be a CalVet. You can't be just anybody. Um, it says non-vets may not assume a CalVet loan. In all circumstances, prior approval must be obtained from the California Department of Veterans Affairs. Okay, and then finally, conventional loan assumptions, conventional fixed rate loans may not usually be assumed. Very, very, very important. As the market gets tighter, uh, you're going to find out that that's going to be more of an issue. You know, somebody's sitting there and saying, listen, I've got a fixed rate loan that I negotiated two and a half years ago, and it's a dynamite loan. I got it right when the bottom of the, right at the bottom of the market. It was just wonderful. And, and the interest rate on the loan is, you know, like fixed rate for, for 30 years, and it's at 5%. That's a dynamite loan because when you're looking at the 5% loan versus maybe where it might be 7% today, that might be a very important feature to have somebody take that loan over. But you really want to make sure that, they, that the seller is getting themselves released from that loan. Very important. And make sure you get that in writing and make sure you have them explain that to you in writing. Just don't take somebody's verbal answer over the phone. Make sure that if they say it's not assumable, where is that? That's why you want to find out. Um, okay, so that takes care of that.
Last couple forums on here. Uh, okay. Mortgage loan. Okay, I think that's pretty much it for this chapter. They have a couple of the forms, such as a mortgage uh, loan disclosure statement, which is just talking about the original money and where all that money is getting paid and, and sent and everything. Um, you may want to look at that. And um, let me see whatever else we have in here that maybe I need to mention. Um, I think that's pretty much pretty much it. One thing that you may find interesting, and I think I've mentioned this before, there are people that are mortgage that are uh, real estate agents that decide that they want to go and be in the real estate finance business. And that might be where they may want to work for a company like a Viatech or a lender of some sort and originate loans. In other words, that's where they're going to focus their attention on. You also may very well find out that there are people that are going to decide to also, besides doing that, that they're going to be in what we call the second loan business. We call them seconds or we call them... Uh, Anyway, junior trustees or whatever. One, the concept here is that this lender or you as a real estate agent, instead of you spying and selling houses, which you would basically do, and you can go home and take a look in the Sacramento Bee and you'll see these loans that are for sale under money wanted or loans for sale in the Sacramento Bee. What it is is that people that will typically be the ones that have carried back this financing when they've sold the property have decided somewhere along the line that they want to, you know, they don't want to sit around and wait for the payments for the rest of the loan. So what they'll do is they'll decide after a couple of years, hey, I want to buy a brand new car and I need the money. So what they'll do is they'll put their loan up for sale. Maybe the loan was originally $50,000 and they want to sell it and use the proceeds to buy a new car. So what they'll do is they'll contact a real estate broker who's a loan broker They'll list the loan with them, and then that loan broker will be the person that maybe puts the ads in the paper and is looking for people that are looking to buy them. Who are the kind of people that buy them? Usually they're investors that are interested in doing lending. They may be investing their pension fund money because they, they feel more comfortable with real estate than they do with uh, stocks and bonds, and they're gonna, uh, they'll buy these deeds of trust, if you will, at a discount. So anyway, I think that pretty much finishes up that chapter. And so the next time we'll be moving into something called, I believe, escrow and title insurance. And thank you very much for coming. See you back here the next time.